This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Jacqueline Gallen, founder of GastroGirl, a patient-centric company focused on improving digestive health. Today, we'll be discussing antibiotic treatment for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis with Philip Schoenfeld, editor-in-chief, about his summary in the June 2023 issue of EBGI, which is titled, Cephalosporins and Ciprofloxacin, Still Appropriate First-Line Treatment for Spontaneous Bacterial Peritonitis. So why is this an important topic for our listeners? First, I want to thank you, Jacqueline, for joining us to do these evidence-based GI podcasts. You're so well-known from all your work with GastroGirl, and we really appreciate your time and effort in joining us. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is a very common cause of hospitalization for patients with cirrhosis of the liver. And as antibiotics get used more and more, we have more and more drug-resistant organisms. And the 2021 American Association for the Study of Liver Disease Guideline noted that we're seeing more drug-resistant organisms causing spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Having said that, the AASLD guideline stated that GI docs should still stick with standard of care antibiotics as the initial treatment when they diagnose SBP, specifically meaning that they start cephalosporins when they do a paracentesis on a patient who's got ascites and maybe some signs of abdominal discomfort or infection. And if the PMN count is greater than 250, go ahead and start with cephalosporin. But GI docs are concerned, is that really still okay to do when you might get a drug-resistant organism and have a patient get sicker in the next 48 hours? So these investigators did a randomized control trial to assess just how good those standard antibiotics are. Well, this is great news for patients, and it's an important topic because there is an issue with the overuse of these antibiotics that could cause this drug resistance to these organisms. And when a patient has something significant going on with their liver that could cause this bacterial peritonitis, it's important for them to feel confident that their doctor has the right evidence about the treatment lines that they can pull from when they're trying to manage the patient care. So I'm excited that we're talking about this today. I really am. And I'd really like to to know, and I'm sure our listeners would too, you know, how did the all the authors investigate the topic? And can you also discuss the study findings? Sure. So this was a multi-center randomized control trial conducted in South Korea. When patients got admitted with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, they were randomized to either get cephalosporins or ciprofloxacin intravenous, and those are all standard antibiotic treatments for SBP. They got other appropriate supportive care, and then at 48 hours, they got a repeat paracentesis. And if their PMN leukocyte counted dropped below 250, they continued on that antibiotic course. If it hadn't, then they were assumed to be a treatment failure and they could get a more potent, broader antibiotic treatment like with piperacillin tazobactam. 
But if they had an appropriate drop in their PMN count, they continued on their antibiotics, and then at 120 hours, or basically uh, approximately five days, based on an overall assessment of their peripheral white blood cell count, whether they had any fevers, and what a repeat paracentesis showed, they were determined to either have had resolution of their SBP and switched over to oral antibiotics with norfloxacin. Bottom line is all three antibiotics work well with treatment resolution in 68%, 74%, 77%. Nevertheless, that means about 20% of patients did have a resistant organism and didn't resolve their SBP and did require going on stronger, more broad-spectrum antibiotics. This could really help patients because they wouldn't have to be going through all this back and forth of trying to find the right treatment when there's evidence for this protocol the authors have outlined and, and confirmed in this study, correct? Correct. My next question, how will you and other clinicians apply this research to the management of your patients? This is very helpful to me because it validates what's in the AASLD guideline. When I work with my GI trainees and internal medicine residents, they're much more likely to want to go for the strongest, most potent antibiotic to cover any possible drug-resistant organisms. And that's poor antibiotic stewardship. We want to save those to treat multidrug-resistant organisms because if we use it all the time, then those multidrug-resistant organisms are going to become resistant also to the really potent antibiotics like Piperacillin tazobactam that we're holding off on. So I tell my trainees, don't dart with Piperacillin tazobactam. It's fine to go ahead and start with cephalosporins and then make sure we repeat a paracentesis at 48 hours. If we're not seeing resolution of the SBP based on the polymorphonuclear leukocyte count of 48 hours, then we can transition to more potent, broader spectrum antibiotics. But this way, we're saving the big guns for when we really need it. Well, you're also saving patients' microbiome, right? That's a big thing. Patients are more and more aware of the importance of the microbiome and what antibiotics could do, they can benefit, but they can also harm if it's, you know, unnecessary, it's not the right treatment for them. So this is good news. Absolutely. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Before we finish, Dr. Schoenfeld, what are the key points for our listeners to remember? As long as it doesn't appear to be a nosocomial infection, meaning a hospital-acquired infection. When a patient gets admitted with SBP, stick with using the traditional first-line antibiotic of cephalosporins to treat it. Repeat your tap at 48 hours. If they haven't had improvement in their PMN count below 250, then you can go to the more potent, broader-spectrum antibiotic. Otherwise, you stick with our standard first-line treatment with cephalosporins. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again for joining me today. For our listeners, please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform. And please follow us on Twitter at ACG underscore EBGI, where we send out PowerPoint tutorials of EBGI summaries every Wednesday. For patients with digestive disorders, please check out the GastroGirl website and the YouTube channel for patient-centric education And for our ACG members, please read full issues of Evidence-Based GI on the ACG website or look for our emails in the middle of each month. 